We help young people 12 to 25 through the biggest issues in their lives. It makes you go from, I can't believe people would comment these things, to, oh, they must be really, really struggling. When you learn through trial and error on the internet, it can put you in some really dangerous situations. Piloting therapy in the metaverse, which has never been done before. Mental health was not ever taught. Amazing. Cool. Today we are at TYX Studios and I am joined by somebody that I've known for a while now, but I've not seen in a while. <laughs> Liam Hackett, CEO of Ditch the Label. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. How are that you? That is your title, right? CEO? Yeah. Yes. Nice. How are you doing? Thank you for coming. I'm good. I'm really good. Um, I'm, yeah. Busy. No complaints. Yeah, busy. Always busy. Yeah. Every time I see you. I know, but it's standard, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's like always chronically tired, but just, <laughs> I feel like being an adult is just be, means being tired all the time. Yes. And not knowing why. Yeah. As somebody with a one-year-old now, I can agree with that. I don't even have a one-year-old. I don't know what my excuse <laughs> no, is. No, we've got a business though, and it's very similar. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you had a very exciting day yesterday with Maybelline. I did, yes. Talk to me about that. Well, we, um, we've been working with Maybelline for a good few months now, yeah. and um, they have this initiative called Brave Together, uh, which is a global initiative, and it's all about... Um, challenging uh, mental health stereotypes and prejudice and empowering people to get help and support and to create a space where people can talk about their mental health, um, whether it's stress, anxiety, depression, uh, body dysmorphia, you know, whatever it is that people are going through. Um, so they're super passionate about working with partners who can mm. facilitate those kind of conversations. And um, obviously we have a team of therapists and digital mentors. And so... We've been doing some really incredible stuff. Yeah. Um, we just produced a campaign, which is all about encouraging people to talk about their mental health. We've got some incredible ta talent in the campaign. We've got some people who have actually had help from Ditch the Label uh, mm -hmm. in the campaign, and they're about to run it on TikTok, Insta. Um, we're doing so much for them. We just had a retreat for influencers, yeah. which was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but it was incredible. Yeah. We had like sound healing, meditations. We did a panel. It looked incredible. It was so good. What's the, I mean, I'm always interested when, when organizations like yourself partner with brands, yeah. because obviously it's, it's important to get the right brand and not just any brand. So what was it about Maybelline that kind of stood out to you? I think uh, fundamentally, I always say that, the best partnerships are partnerships mm -hmm. and you know kind of a lot of non-profit and brand partnerships are kind of very transactional yeah and it will be someone hands over a check you go and spend it and then a year later you send them an impact report i personally don't love those partnerships because you miss out on so many opportunities mm -hmm. and i think you know when i look at an organization like maybelline fundamentally we're a group of people who work for two different organizations who are mm. all really passionate about a mutual cause. And we all have this mutual objective to genuinely create change mm. uh, and empower young people around their mental health. And we also share this frustration of like the status quo and how stale things have become and how things aren't always as innovative or as um, cutting edge as they possibly could be. And so... I think what I always look for in a in a brand partnership is that mutual passion mm. and the opportunities to collaborate. And that's where I feel like the magic really happens. Yeah. And, you know, we've had partners like where 
there's been so much mutual learning. Like they've yeah. learned so much about what we do and like from our point of view, and we've learned so much about what they're doing and mm -hmm. how we can execute and bring things to life. And so that is like the value created. So yeah. I would say that is is really important, but also, you know, kind of when you look at Maybelline's reach, it's enormous. Yeah. And um, the reach of kind of Gen Z's and millennials is yeah, like yeah. incredible. And so, you know, by creating a change that we want to create in the world, we do need to work with partners who have that kind of reach because yeah. it just gives us access to audiences that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. How do you kind of, when people, when brands and organizations like yourself partner, a lot of the time people see it as, oh, a, you know, brands are just trying to tick a box and say they're focusing on mental health or focusing on some sort of mission. How do you make sure that it is authentic and it actually has the impact that you're trying to actually get out of it and it's not just a tick box exercise? I mean, you always have that danger. Yeah. Um, and what I'll say is we're really fortunate that we have so many incredible brand partners. And mm. I have to say, out of all of our brand partners, our contacts, the teams, and the people that we work with are genuinely so passionate about mm. creating change. I mean, this is why they do their jobs. Yeah. And sometimes you see this kind of internal battle where they're really advocating for social change and advocating yeah. for uh, the programs that we're creating. And then internally, um, where other teams are then involved, it's it's not really, you know, they're not as passionate about it. And yeah. So I would say that, you know, it's really easy to think of brands as like a collective singular ident identity. Yeah. yeah. But they're not. And it's really fascinating mm. understanding these internal politics. And I would say um, that is key is like having those relationships, having that good communication, having mm. people who are passionate. And... Um, you know, we're kind of at a point now where it's like, it's not even value added for a brand to be doing social purpose. It's mm. expected. Um, and people yeah. are now recognizing yeah. that brands are some of the biggest global citizens. They have the most mm. resource. They have the most reach. Like they have the most impact. And so mm. we're kind of in an era where brands have to be doing stuff. Mm. Um, and I would say brands are taking it seriously. And, yeah, you know, especially the bigger, the bigger ones. And they're, they're also some of the biggest employers of people. So they have to be seen to be to be focusing on it. And it's, it's something I want to talk about more later on in the conversation. But I always like to start with digging into the person that I'm interviewing and seeing how your mindset came about, how your journey came about. So take me right back to being a kid from St. Helens, right? Yeah, how do yeah. you know that? A bit of research. <laughs> Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> but well, Amy, my wife, helps me with my research. Yeah. <laughs> um, so talk to me about your childhood. Talk to me about, about what it was like growing up for you and kind of where this passion for focusing on mental health bullying came from. Yeah, so as you said, I grew up in St. Helens, which... Yeah. Uh, it's right in the middle of Liverpool and Manchester. Yeah. Um, used to be, the main industry used to be mining. Right. And then it was glass. <laughs> and now it's rugby. <laughs> so it's kind of like this in-between place. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not the most diverse place in the world. Hmm. Growing up as a gay kid um, was really difficult. Yeah. And uh, I experienced a lot of bullying. Um, you know, at one point I was hospitalized from an attack. Right. Uh, so had, had you come out when you were... I was outed. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I was outed. Um, and I was, at the time, still trying to figure it out. I didn't really understand what was going on. Right. 
but I'd been bullied from kind of like day one of primary school yeah, yeah. right until the end of secondary school. Um, and it was really tough and I really struggled with my mental health. Uh, I had really invasive thoughts of suicide at the worst points. I just genuinely had really low self-esteem. Um, I really struggled with my body image. Uh, you know, looking back now, I recognize that I had a bit of a, a disordered relationship with food and mm. my body. And, you know, I remember I used to have um, really bad skin. And I remember this one time I got uh, sandpaper and I was sandpapering my my face because I wanted to get rid of all of this acne. Yeah. And like, you know, I just really, really struggled. And I was kind of mm. internalizing all of this abuse that I was getting and uh, really it really damaged my relationship with myself and I hated who I was and mm. I didn't want to be here. And I really struggled with having, to be honest, not many friends. And um, aside from that, I had issues at home. My dad left when I was a, a kid and my nan and granddad were like super religious, disowned me when I was 11. Oh, okay. um, and so there was, it was difficult and it was lonely. Um, and then when I was about, 14 this new website appeared called myspace <laughs> changed my life yeah yeah and i it was it was wild i like started to talk about my experiences and literally i had like a hundred thousand friends on myspace wow and then i was going into school walking around on my own and so it you're was like an o og influencer yeah. <laughs> and it was it was weird yeah um, so did people in the school know you had such a big following? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Do you think that made you a bit of a target for some people? So this started to happen at the end of school mm. and it was more known in college. So I remember when I started college, like people already had a perception of me mm. and it was, it was so weird. It was like, there's such a, like, I don't know, like a contrast to being so lonely and then all of a sudden like I'm getting all of these right. followers on MySpace yeah. and I'm getting like all these people message me about their experiences. And mm -hmm. like, it was just like surreal. And I'm a, a kid yeah. with all of these issues. I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. But it was this time that I realized that these issues were not just affecting me. They're affecting a lot of people. And actually like the internet could be a really powerful tool to connect people together. Mm. And so the idea of Ditch Label was born when I was 15 and started as a MySpace profile. Yeah. And I look back now and I still have some screenshots of it and I just cringe. Oh, so that's in what, two, like 2006? Yeah. Yeah. 2006. That is mental. And, you know, the name... Was it I, ditched the label from the beginning? Yeah. Really? And for me, it was like, you know what? Like all of these labels that I put, you know, when you're a kid, yeah, you're yeah. a teen and you're like, you feel labeled and you feel judged and you feel like people are making these snap like yeah. decisions about you. It was a frustration with that. Mm. And that's where the name came from right. through that like teenage angst. Um, and it just really started to snowball. Yeah. And, you know, at the time I was studying like business at school, I went mm. on to do it at um, college and was really passionate about building Ditch Label. Did, did you have any resources back then? Anything close to Ditch the Label? No. Nothing? There was Childline. Yeah. Anything um, in the schools or anything no. like that? No. So you were making the platform you needed, really? Yeah. There was nothing. You know, this is like 
the beginning of Web 2.0. Yeah. So it's like Bebo, MySpace, oh my God, MSN. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there was nothing. Yeah. Nothing, literally yeah. nothing. Um, and, um, you know, I had been made to feel like a victim a lot. Mm. And I felt like there was judgment from my teachers at school. Mm. I just didn't really have this support network. But then I had this massive support network on the internet. Mm. Um, and it was just like, it was really empowering. But as a 15-year-old, I had no idea how to handle it. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, I was a bit of a dick. You know, I'd kind of gone from being this really shy, quiet kid in school. You know, I really kind of like would walk around with my head down all the time mm. and like didn't want anyone to notice me and then in college it was almost like this transformation where I was like walking around like I was Kim Kardashian or something and like sunglasses in college or whatever was it a but, persona though yeah like less it was than survival yeah okay and it wasn't ego at all it was no. insecurity it was so you like, didn't believe that that was who you were you were just putting it on to kind of stay confident yeah I was faking it. Yeah. I was actually inside. I was still crippled by yeah. 10 years of abuse that I'd had. Yeah. But I was like, I now have an opportunity to reinvent myself. But I reinvented mm. myself in the wrong way into a not so likable person. It's a very honest thing to say because a lot of people wouldn't say that. They'd just be like, oh, no, it was everybody else's problem. It, like, not many people admit that they were this, you know, arrogant person for a period of time. Yeah. How did you get out of that? Um, so I carried that for two years. Yeah. And what was weird is I had loads of friends at college. Mm. I was super sociable. You know, I was hosting parties. I was going to people's parties. And like, yeah. I think people at the time were like really drawn in by this MySpace thing. And yeah. I kind of felt this pressure to maintain this persona I was putting out online. Mm. And, um, you know, I cringe like looking back at it because I was just, it, it just not likable, mm. but it was just insecurity. And the thing that broke it was the end of college. I got accepted to Sussex University and I was like, I don't like who this person is and I don't want to do it anymore. Mm. And so MySpace had started to kind of fade a little bit. I was like, I just don't want to do the MySpace thing anymore. Mm. I don't want to do any of this. I'm going to university. Like I actually now want to heal from all of this stuff that's happened and I want to build genuine confidence and not mm. fake it and act like I'm this overly confident person when actually I really wasn't. I was like this little kitten that was so <laughs> like damaged. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, it was like, I just dropped it and went to university, never really spoke about MySpace. Um, and just that's actually when I started to kind of discover who I actually really was. Mm. Did you did you not speak about MySpace or did you try and hide it? I didn't speak about it. Just didn't it. speak about it to anyone. I didn't want I didn't want it. Yeah. Um, because I felt like that was cementing this persona that I'd created to survive. Mm. Um because that's all it was. I was performing. Mm. And I was talking to somebody recently. They're like, you know, like gay people are so used to performing. And I was like, really? And I thought about it. I was like, well, yeah, we have to perform. And especially growing up where I grew up, where mm. it was super homophobic, yeah. I'd have to try and mask who I was mm. and try and uh, perform as a character that I actually wasn't. And then, you know, kind of going to Sussex University in Brighton, it was like I had this license to just actually yeah. almost just like have a, like a sigh of relief mm. and like this weight was lifted. And I was like, I can, I can now discover who I am mm. authentically. And this is stuff people normally do in their early teens, but yeah. I hadn't had the right to do that. 
Do you ever go back to St. Helens now? Yeah. What's that like? Completely different. Yeah. Um, it's progressed a lot. Okay. Um, and I have a lot of respect for it. You know, I really mm. resented it for a long time. Yeah. I hated it. Hard I would, to go back sometimes. Yeah, I would yeah. get anxiety about going back. Um, but now I see it differently. You know, I kind of have respect for it. And, um, you know, all of those difficult experiences I had, I'm grateful for because... Uh, it's helped me create Ditch Label. It's mm. helped turn me into the person that I am today. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult, but I, I kind of am very philosophical. I believe that everything happens for a reason. Yeah. I think we learn and grow from the hardest experiences in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just part of my journey. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I go back every... My family is still there, so I go right. back quite a bit. Yeah. So for anybody that doesn't know what Ditch Label is or what it does, give me a rundown, the synopsis of what it is and what you guys do. So we're a global youth nonprofit and um, we help young people 12 to 25 through the biggest issues in their lives. So whether they're struggling with bullying, with mental health, with identity, body image, relationships, whatever it is that they're going through, mm -hmm. we're there to help them, but also to advocate for them and mm -hmm. to give them a voice and you know, we do things very differently. So if you go onto our website, feedback we quite often get is, oh my God, is, is it a fashion brand? Or I don't, I don't yeah. get it. And it's usually from kind of older generations. Right, okay. And it's done strategically. You know, you go onto our website and it is like other websites that Gen Zs are using, you mm -hmm. know, the tone of voice, the look and feel. Mm -hmm. um, the experience is really engaging and that for us is really important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't patronize young people. We're all about being real and frank and honest and empowering and giving them tools that they need to yeah. resolve their own situations. And so we do a lot of research to understand the root causes of issues. So mm -hmm. if you take something like bullying, for example, mm. the status quo generally used to be like bullying with a red circle and a line through it. And it's like, just be kind. Yeah. What our approach was, yeah, that's well-meaning, but are you actually getting to the root of the problem? No, you're just masking it, aren't you? So we spent a, spent a lot of time understanding why people bully in the first place. Yeah. Like what is going on for somebody who is going into school or going online and being abusive? Mm -hmm. And what we found was really interesting. So we found that generally the mental health of a perpetrator is in a worse condition than someone who's victimized. Mm -hmm. We found higher rates of abuse at home, mm -hmm. higher rates of stress and trauma, mm -hmm. um, higher rates of low self-esteem, low confidence. And then we started to build this picture of perpetrators and there's obviously always different reasons but then our narrative changed and it's like yes we're there to support people who are impacted but also we also have a bigger opportunity to support people who are perpetrating mm. um to challenge status quo that can be toxic and unhealthy mm -hmm. you know we've mapped out the causes of things like anxiety depression etc and so as an organization, we're also going into classrooms, we're running campaigns, we're working with influencers and yeah. brands to create big societal change. So we're actually preventing these issues from ever happening in the first place. Yeah. Um, and then we also provide uh, free clinical support. So you mm. can speak to a therapist for free yeah. on Ditch Label's digital platforms, mm. um, which is something that's never been done before. It's always been kind of volunteers on a helpline. Yeah. We've got clinically trained psychologists, therapists, counsellors uh, that young people globally can speak to whenever it's they in, want. It's incredible because I, I know from personal experience, experience of 
friends, family, how difficult it is to get counselling. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge issue with wait lists and you pretty much have to go private if you want to get seen immediately. So to have that kind of resource is, is incredible. I think something you just said that um, we've had a bit of experience with uh, outreach is when we did the documentary of Ditch Label of Kate and Leah, and we actually interviewed a troll um, and got down to the root cause of why they um, hate on people online. And it was quite fascinating and eye-opening really to to see those reasons and it basically boiled down to they were saying what they wanted to somebody else but to say it to themselves mm. so this was a trans individual and they were saying to kate not to kate and Leah, but to the people that kate and Leah had been speaking to you'll never be a woman you know all of this these hate words and horrible horrible things but they were saying it to themselves yeah which is it makes you go from, I can't believe people would comment these things to, oh, they must be really, really struggling. And who is saying that to them exactly. in their life? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's fascinating because if you take somebody who is perpetrating abuse mm -hmm. um, and demonize them and punish them, mm. research shows that kids who are bullying at school mm. Far more likely to go on and commit crimes later on in life yeah being abusive relationships mm -hmm. uh the list is endless so we know that that model doesn't always work and we're not condoning abusive mm. behavior at all no but we are saying there is a role to sit down with that uh, child or adult mm -hmm. and actually try to help them figure out what's going on mm. what is the root and help them reflect and help them heal from that route or mm. change their environment so that they don't feel like they have to cope with it in such negative ways. Mm -hmm. You know what was interesting? We did um, a study in the pandemic where we analyzed, I think it was like 25 million conversations on the internet. And we found that online abuse had increased by over 40%. Asian hate had increased by over 1,200%. Yeah, I've read that study when we were doing the Caitlin and Leah um, documentary and it was very, very, very high because it was mostly to do after COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, we weren't hugely surprised. No. Because when you look at it, it was almost a perfect storm mm. because you, all of a sudden, people are thrown into this situation. They've got no control. Mm -hmm. They don't know what's going on. Mm. Uh, they're isolated quite often mm -hmm. or, you know, they're experiencing detrimental impact on their mental health. They've got more disposable time. Um, they're sat on a screen all the time, which yeah. we know has a negative impact as well. Um, they've got all of this stress. They've got all of this uncertainty. Many people are experiencing bereavement and grief and loss and, you know, not just of people, but of situations jobs yeah. relationships you know the list is endless then you have all of these media narratives that are all about fear-mongering trying to position asian people as a problem for mm. example um and isolating marginalized communities and stirring up this hatred mm -hmm. and so actually is it really a massive surprise that online hate increased no knowing that we what we know about the causes of online toxicity mm it's not a massive surprise. No. And so what we want to do is obviously still be there to support people who are impacted, mm. but work with partners to really challenge these bigger societal issues because we can't do it by ourselves. And no. so 
when you were asking me earlier about, you know, what is important in a brand partnership. And mm. this helps explain why it is so such a huge value creation when a brand is so well known, yeah. has such a huge reach because those brands have a unique opportunity to actually influence mm. societal attitudes and behaviors. Mm. And I think there's also something really interesting. And I talk to influencers and celebrities about this a lot. And it's understanding that people who are trolling them and targeting them online, it's not because of them. It's no. not their fault. Mm. And actually giving them the insights about what is driving that kind of behavior mm. is really empowering because all of a sudden it's like something just switches. Yeah. And they're like, oh, mm. so maybe I don't need to mask who I am or try to change who <laughs> yeah, I am. And, yeah. you know, I have um, a really good friend who is, uh, you know, has been in the public eye since she's 18. And she went on this journey of, a lot of plastic surgery because of the trolling she was getting online. Mm. And then she started to get trolled because of the plastic surgery <laughs> yeah. and yeah. was in a point where she's like, I can't win either way. No. And then just had this realization was like, actually, I need to stop trying to morph who I am yeah. to make other people happy. It's interesting to me, targeting the root cause is really important, but the rise of hate on social media, like you say, was probably quite an obvious thing that was going to happen, especially during lockdown because people were on their phones. And I know you do a lot of work with the social media platforms. So I guess it's quite a big question, but do you think they're doing enough to stop online hate? Yes and no. Um, it goes back to the point I was making about organizations as being this these big ecosystems with mm. many opposing values, many opposing attitudes and mm -hmm. beliefs and priorities. Yeah. And so from my experience, we generally work with trust and safety teams who are incredible people. Yeah. They live and breathe this space and all they want is to make their platforms as safe as possible. And I hear anecdotes of how they're up against commercial teams and mm. uh, who want to drive engagement and traffic and the best user experience. And there's always friction between the two priorities mm. because the technology exists now to implement things like AI yeah. um, and feedback responses to yeah. prevent a lot of these issues from happening. But the tension internally is always about, well, does that affect user experience? Are people going to use our platform less if we implement these things? Mm. And there's a lot of internal conflict going on at these social networks yeah. that you don't see on the outside because we yeah. always think that one organization is just one set entity with one no. point of view, but it isn't. No, well, they're multinational as well. So they're, they're competing against difficult, different um, political systems as well. And different cultural norms around yeah. things like privacy yeah. is huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in answer to your question, Yes, in some ways, but not enough and not quickly mm. enough. And, you know, we've been involved in the government's online harms uh, legislation, which is all about making the internet yeah. much safer and regulated. Yeah. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see how over the next few years, mm. social networks will be mandated mm -hmm. uh, to take this more seriously. Yeah. But it's kind of sad that it's come to this. Like normally mm. there will be like industry standards where everybody is in agreement that we yeah. will have a certain yeah. standard. Um, what are the change? If you could make, wave your magic wand now and make the changes that the platforms need to make to make it safer, what would they be? I think there's a real big thing around education. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've got a, a school module on digital literacy because mm. the real danger is kids are given an iPad at the age of three now. Mm. Um, 
and it becomes like this self-soothing thing. Mm -hmm. And we're learning. I mean, we can vouch for this because we were like the first generation on the internet. Mm. We were learning through trial and error. Mm. And when you learn through trial and error on the internet, it can put you in some really dangerous situations. Mm. And we know that the internet isn't always the most forgiving place place in the world. Mm -hmm. And when you imagine like a child suddenly has access to this entire world of information and people mm. and they're not being taught how to use it properly. Mm. And then you can take that a step further and you see influencers who become some, in some cases, household names mm. at a really young age. They've never had anyone sit down with them and teach them about how to use it well and responsibly beyond like teaching them how yeah. to block someone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I talk a lot to influencers and about psychology, about these online behaviors and train them, um, you know, kind of resilience and, um, you know, kind of like giving them tools that they can use that are going to enhance their online experiences. But I believe that everybody needs to have this training and, you know, it needs to be mandated in the school curriculum. Yeah. And we can't rely on parents to do it because parents... Mm, frankly, they yeah, frankly, they don't know what they're doing. We also learn yeah. through trial and error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time, well, we're all hooked onto social media. We're mm. dopamine addicts. <laughs> and so we're role modeling certain behaviors. And then you have to ask a question is, what's that teaching our kids? Mm. Um, and, you know that's what i'd change because i think education is prevention how do you build that um resilience you talked about you talk to influencers what about just for the general public you know a 16 year old that's on social media is addicted like every other 16 year old is and they are getting hate or they're seeing hate which is making them have a negative headspace how do you start to build that resilience insights like there's two things that i'll say about it the first thing is we have a thing called negativity bias mm -hmm. it's pre-programmed in our brain yeah. subconsciously and so Basically, what that means is we're constantly scanning our environment, mm. looking for threats and danger, mm. and we're drawn to it. Right. So, for example, you know, we will both be acutely aware of this environment that we're in, and we're kind of like scanning the environment almost on a subliminal thing in case there's a danger that enters the room. Yeah. But we also do this uh, with things like the news, and the news hijacks this system. So mm. if you look at the news, it's always negative. There's always a threat yeah. to life. There's yeah. always a threat to your well-being. Yeah. And so that's why it becomes so addictive because we're like, oh my God, oh my God. And when you think about, you know, a thousand years ago, it made total sense because mm. if you were uh, walking around in nature and all of mm. a sudden this animal is hunting you or whatever, mm. it, that's what made us survive. Mm. You could argue in modern day life, we, it doesn't need to be as heightened. Yeah, but it is. But it's there. So that's the first thing. Um, we are drawn to negativity. So mm. this helps us understand why you could have 100 positive comments on a photo and one negative and you'll be drawn to it mm. um, because it hijacks this negativity bias. And then the second thing is we have a confirmation bias. So if you have a belief about your system, let's just say uh, my belief is I look like... Um, a failed Joe Wicks today in my outfit. <laughs> Not if someone, true. If I'm scanning the environment, looking for confirmation of that. Yeah. So if you say to me, oh, you look a bit like a PE teacher. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, that means it confirms yeah. this fear that I have. Yeah. If someone says it online, it's going to have a huge impact mm. on how I'm feeling about what I mm. wear. Just for clarity, I don't feel like I am a <laughs> failed Joe Wicks, but um. So when you have these two things together, it almost becomes a perfect storm. Yeah. And, you know, 
I would argue that pretty much all of us have some insecurity about our appearance and the world we live in is designed to make you feel that way to sell your product. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I would also argue that the more visible you are on social media, the more you feel this insecurity about how you look. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you have these two things coming together, mm. it's a perfect storm. And that is why we scan our comments for negative comments. And that is why mm. a negative comment has much more weight than a positive comment. And just understanding that and knowing what's going on in your mind means that you then are more present when it's happening yeah. and you can interject yeah. and you're like, oh, what's going on for me right now? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? And what can I do differently? Mm. And it really makes a difference. Mm. That is so interesting about the um, the negativity and that we search for it because anybody who's on social media, whether you're an influencer or you're just an everyday user, everybody knows how the algorithm kind of works. And you have to engage with your, especially if you're an influencer, engage with your audience. Like where you're always telling our creators, you've got, to, you've got to engage. But that also means you've got to read any comment, no matter if it's good or bad. So it's really difficult for creators to get outside of that headspace of like, why is this happening? And if they do read something that confirms something they were, they were worried about, that can be so damaging to them. But the danger is, if you are basing your validation externally, yeah. you will never be validated. You yeah. will never get those needs met. You know, if you're feeling insecure about, I don't know, like your skin. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many people tell you your skin looks great. Yeah. If you're not meeting that need yourself and getting that validation internally and doing the internal work, you will constantly be seeking reassurance. And so what I always say is, we should not be using social media to seek validation because it leaves us incredibly vulnerable because mm. that validation is not always guaranteed. No. And we already know there are some bad actors on the internet who are projecting their own low self-esteem and their feelings about themselves and they're putting that onto other people. And mm. so you're leaving yourself vulnerable when you post an image online mm. if what you're looking to get is validation. If you're basing your self-esteem and that validation on how many likes it got, how much yeah. engagement, how many comments, how many compliments. Yeah you're vulnerable. And so the only way around it is to actually do that work internally. Yeah. Uh, work on how your relationship with yourself um, and understand where some of those messages are coming from, mm. some of those pressures, like what impact is it having? And so another tip is I always say like, don't follow people like you want to look like. No. It never no. goes well. It's like, because it's a constant reminder of how you want to look. Yeah. Uh, and also, we always talk about image editing. Everybody's aware of it. Yeah. But when you're actually in the moment, it's easy to forget. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's not just about going to therapy for six months and feeling validated. It's also about how you reinforce that in your daily life yeah. and how selective you are about the media you follow, the people you follow. 100%. And I, the communities that. that you're in. I love that because... I am obviously, I run a social media based agency. I love social media. Like I know there are downsides to it, like most things, but there's such an upside to social media if you use it in the right way. And that's the key thing is about using social media in a positive way. And 
I forget who I was speaking to on another podcast, but he basically has two different Instagram feeds. He has like a work Instagram feed and then a personal Instagram feed. And he's even, I think, has a third Instagram feed that is just about stuff that inspires him. Yeah. And I think that that is something that we, like you're saying, we search for the negative. We tend to follow people that frankly annoy us. Like it might be a friend. It might be somebody who's, whose lifestyle you want. And then you follow them and you go, oh, I don't have that bag or I don't have that car. I'm not on that holiday. When actually, if you followed the correct people, the algorithm, nine times out of 10, hopefully if it works, will push that content towards you more and you'll be able to get that validation and inspiration that you actually are looking for. But it's about using, like you're saying, frankly, it comes down to education, how to use social media in a way that is positive. Yeah, and social media isn't good or bad. No. We decide. It's based on our relationship. Are you using it to bring stuff into your life or to take? It's like, you know, when you see two people at a meal and one of them's just sat on the phone or both of them, I'm like... Yeah. You are limiting what you are experiencing to what can be shown on a crystal screen that is occupying maybe 5% of the space around you. And yeah. you're missing out on all of this stuff. Yeah. You're missing out on the magic of like human face-to-face yeah. contact. You're losing all of that. And so that's a perfect example of how it can take from you. Mm. But a great example of how it can give is like, well, my story, you know, yeah. Ditch Label started on social media yeah, yeah. and now reaches millions of people a, a year through social media yeah. and the internet. And so, um, and, you know, the social media is incredible. It is so, so powerful when it's used in the right way. You know what was interesting? I went on a, a two month sabbatical to Asia. Right. And um, I loved it. It was so eye opening. I learned a lot. Um, it was not what I Im- imagined at all, but it mm. was exactly what I needed. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time getting to know people in the countries that I was in mm. and learning about their culture, learning about their lives, mm. even seeing where people live. Mm. And what I was seeing was like, I didn't see one Tesla. I didn't see any Louis Vuitton. Mm. I didn't see anything like that. And people were so happy and their value base is so different to ours. I Mm. mean, in the West, like it is so focused on material and it's like we're chasing the coin and we're chasing the designer brands and all of this kind of stuff. And when you finally reach that, it doesn't actually bring you happiness, Mm. but we we keep doing it. And we anchor our happiness on condition into the future. And I I, I do this sometimes too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we I spent do. my 20s doing yeah. it. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll be happy when Ditch Label reaches this. And then it would happen. And I'd be like, yeah, but you know, I'll be happy when it actually gets this. And I was never happy. Mm. And um, now I'm much more mindful and I'm actually just mm. happy about the process and I'm enjoying all of it. Um, How did you get to that period? Because I feel like I might be where you were a few years ago where... I'm always saying to my wife, Amy, who's my business partner, I'm going to be happy when outreach gets to this. I'm going to be happy when we've achieved this. And she's like, can you not just be happy? Like think where you were two years ago. Like if you'd have said you were going to be here, you'd be super happy. So how did you get from that stage? Like, was it going to Asia? Was it just being more aware and mindful of your own thoughts? Like, how did you get past that? Many different things, but I would say gratitude. Yeah. And then imagine in your life without any of the things that you love and care about. Mm. What would your life be like without outreach if it just stopped existing, if your team just disappeared? Mm. And then you're like, oh my God, it would be, you know, we'd always survive, but you're much happier with your team and with your company. And I feel the same. Mm. And I do this thing um, where I imagine I'm on my deathbed. And 
I'm looking back at my life and I think this is a really good tool. Mm. And it's also really good if I'm stuck on something, if I can't make my mind up. Mm. I'll imagine that I'm on my deathbed. I'm like, what do I wish I'd have done? And I would get the answer like that. Yeah. And then I'm like, right, that is what I need to yeah, do. Yeah. And when I meditate and imagine being on my deathbed, I'm not buzzing because there's a nice car on the driveway and I've got like all of these physical things because I can't take them with me no. and it doesn't actually matter. Mm. Um, I'm focusing, what I'm thinking about is my memories, the moments of happiness, the mm. times I laughed, you know, the people in my life, the feeling of love and fulfillment and mm. personal accomplishment. And that helps reframe it massively. And then I think the other thing is as well, is like when you realize uh, so much stuff that we take so seriously is completely made up. Yeah. It's fabricated. Yeah. Um, you take a company, for example, mm. a company doesn't exist. We no. made it up. Yeah. It doesn't grow in nature. It's like yeah, yeah. even le law, legal structure, yeah. it, it's not actually real. It's just we all agree it's real. So it becomes yeah. real. Yeah. And it's the same with like brands, with material objects. It's mm. a figment of imagination. Yeah. And I was reading a book called Sapiens. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. I've read that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he's talking about... Um, I think it was like a car manufacturer. Let's just yeah. say it was like Volkswagen or whatever. Mm. He's like, if you get rid of every Volkswagen car in the world, does it still exist? Yes. If you get rid of their mm. office, does it still exist? Yes. Mm. But if you get rid of memory, does it still exist? No. Mm. And it only exists because we all imagined it and agreed yeah. to it. And so it helps you put things into perspective. It's like, if you're basing your happiness on material things mm. and like, you know, uh, like objects mm. it's literally made up <laughs> like what is to say that a Louis Vuitton bag which I recently found out isn't usually made out of leather no, anyway no I was um cotton yeah I had um um Ben Gallagher on my podcast who's a who runs looks collective and it's a pre-loved website and he was he did a video about it and I was mind blown that it yeah. wasn't real leather yeah but who says that because it's cotton coated in plastic that it's only yeah why is that more yeah. valuable yeah. than an old bottle of Evian. <laughs> Obviously, it yeah. is because there's craftsmanship yeah, and it's yeah, constructed yeah. and all this. Brand, it has a it? value yeah. that is objectively higher than a bottle of Evian, yeah. but not to the extent that it's inflated and no. that we pay for it. We're paying for the psychological benefit yeah. and we're paying for the marketing that creates that psychological benefit of exclusivity. Mm. It means you're yeah. successful and yeah. all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I'm a hypocrite because there's literally one over there, but I, <laughs> I bought it before say. I knew it was cotton and plastic. But yeah. this is when I was driven by it. And I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, when I get this, people are going to know that I'm yeah. like successful. It didn't It yeah. didn't make a difference. And unlearning that pattern and being more mindful is actually mm. so empowering. And I think, you know, I'd kind of been on this journey and then I went to Asia and I saw people were so happy. And all I had mm. was each other, love, experiences. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God. Like we have got it so, so wrong. Yeah, so wrong. How do you focus your brain and your team's mindset on their own social media when they're so engrossed from a work standpoint? Because I find it quite difficult. And I've spoken to a lot of my team about this. When they get to the end of the day, the last thing they want to be is on social media but everybody still tends to go on it. And then because you're going in a tired state, you're just like, oh, that's happening again. Like, do you have any practices internally within Ditch the Label for your employees to kind of manage their own social media? Well, we as an employer, to take a step back, yeah. we're not typical. So, right. you know, if you come into our office, 
in a way, it's like you've walked into a retreat. Yeah. You know, we've got yoga mats, we've got crystal sound healing. Yeah. Like, we're very big on doing like team meditations, breath work. Like, we have this thing called Piss About Fridays, which is the last Friday of every month. And like, we go out and we do different things. And mm. like, quite often it is built around mindfulness and mm. positive mental health. And we have a bursary program. So, for every pound you invest in your mental well being, we will match fund it. And that has opened up things like therapy to people and has made a massive difference. And so our model is to give people the tools mm. and then it's up to them what they do with it. But we have yeah. found it has made people more mindful. Mm. Um, people are starting to understand themselves better. Like some of the growth I've seen in some of the team has just been astronomical. Mm. And we're talking over like a six to 12 month period mm. when you create a safe space where they can talk openly yeah. um, and where they are given access to tools that they might not have accessed otherwise. Mm. And so the byproduct of that is you do see people become more, more mindful. Mm. Um, I think most of the people in the team just have like, private Instagram accounts and mm. they it's not a big staple in their lives no. um but yeah I would just say like culturally for us and also as a leader I am very passionate about work-life boundaries yeah and I literally will tell people to leave the office <laughs> um and if I ever yeah. mess any, message anybody outside of office hours on slack mm. I already tell them to turn the notifications off. Yeah. And I will always preface and I'll say, there is no expectation that you reply. I'm just putting this here yeah. because I'll forget otherwise. Yeah. And we have deep respect for work-life boundaries. Mm. And I think that's important, especially when you are working digitally yeah. because it's very easy. And we become addicted to emails and to yeah, yeah. social and stuff. It's very easy to lose those were, were you were you like that at the beginning like when you first started when you went from you know a one-man band to starting to hire employees did you have that mindfulness that you needed to be that type of employee from the get-go no or has it just been a journey for you it's been a journey you know i've been doing this for 11 time 11 years sorry yeah. and um i before did i mean i used to have a marketing agency as well so right. i started that at the same time as ditch label mm -hmm. So I learn through experience and I would say it's been heavily um, influenced by my own journey. You know, I spent my 20s like healing from all of that stuff mm. and figuring out who I was mm. and building my self-esteem back up and learning about, you know, I'm fascinated about people. Yeah, yeah. I love people yeah. and I'm, I'm like... I love to learn. Like I literally mm. spent six months learning about quantum physics because I'm I just love to like learn things. And so... And that really permeates across Ditcher Label because we are also like that as an organization. We always want to learn. We want to yeah. understand. Yeah. And so I would say it's been driven by that. And also um, just like driven by not feeling a pressure to follow a status quo. Mm -hmm. Just because like other workplaces don't do team breath work or crystal sound bowls or whatever yeah. doesn't mean that we can't do it. And no. we actually have an opportunity to set a new standard. Mm. And if we are preaching so much about mental health, boundaries, you know, confidence. That's what I find fascinating is that because you're preaching it, you have to practice it. Yeah. So do you feel, I don't want to say like a, a pressure, but just an expectation both internally and externally to make sure that you're doing everything you can for your team. I don't feel a pressure because I want to do it yeah. and I love it. And yeah. I love seeing my team grow. Mm. And sometimes 
they need to they can grow a certain amount with you and then they need to move on to the next chapter and mm. when that's the right time i'll encourage it even mm. though it's painful yeah and if i think selfishly i don't want that to happen mm. for them i'm like i want you to grow and reach your potential yeah. um and i want to create a space where you're reaching your potential you're feeling fulfilled mm -hmm. your comfort zones being challenged um but you're in an environment where it's safe mm. to be you and yeah. to have all of these experiences and yeah. maybe that's not the most commercialized way of seeing it mm. but i think this is where we get the most from people because people are loyal they're honest mm. um the relationships that i have with my team is incredible mm. the mutual respect is mm. incredible and we don't take ourselves too seriously yeah. you know like the yeah. humor is incredible and i love going into that office yeah. and everybody else says the same and people who come in as guests or uh, even for interviews, we always mm. get comments. So like, oh my God, it feels so good in here. Like, you know, mm. it's literally like a hippie's office. Like it would be like <laughs> incense sticks yeah, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. But the vibe, if you're ever in Brighton, you should come in because you'll get definitely. it. Like the vibe is like, yeah. it is incredible. Mm. And I do think, I I think my philosophy is like, we're not here to just spend our whole lives working. Yeah. And especially not working in a way that doesn't fulfill us or feed our soul. Mm -hmm. I think the two are actually can work together mm -hmm. um, and one doesn't have to take from the other. And so I don't feel pressure to do it. I don't have to do it, mm. but it is my belief and my philosophy. And I think I would be uh, untrue to my value base if I wasn't doing yeah. these things. You talked about the, uh, you love seeing the growth of your team. Your company's also growing. You've just gone into Mexico. What was that like? Like going into a Spanish-speaking because you do you speak Spanish? No, no. <laughs> so what was it like just going into a brand new culture, brand new language? We spent a year on this project, and yeah. we don't want to go in as like Western saviors, yeah, and saying this is the problem with your culture and yeah. we're here to fix it. That is not what we want to do. No, what we want to do is really spend the time understanding what it's like in Mexico. What mm. is it like for a 14 year old mm. growing up in different parts of Mexico right now? Mm -hmm. um, and how can we add value with partners in Mexico and with um, the people that were working in Mexico? How can we take all that we've learned and all that we do and all that we know and reformat it into a new culture, a new language mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to really create change. And it's been hugely emotional. The challenges that a lot of young people are growing up with in Mexico are things that we don't even think about. Mm. We did a huge cultural study and there's a story that all I will always remember. Um, there's two primary school boys bullying each other. Mm -hmm. One of the boys was shot dead by the father of the other one. Jesus. And so a lot of young people are fearing their lives in Mexico. Um, we all hear about the cartel and violence yeah. and yeah. that there is a presence of the cartel. Mm -hmm. That stuff is real. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's dramatized quite a bit, but mm -hmm. the point is the challenges growing up in Mexico are very different to somewhere like the UK or mm -hmm. the US. And it's devastating, but it's also empowering because we have a real opportunity to create meaningful change. There's nothing like digital labor or even remotely that exists in Mexico. Mm. And, you know, if you say to kind of a 14 year old in the UK, when did you last feel anxious? 
most of the time they'll be able to tell you. If you say that to someone in Mexico, generally, they don't know because the climate around mental health is the literacy still doesn't fully exist. And, mm. you know, in the UK, especially, we're more vocal about it. Mm. The internet has given us access to this literacy and these tools and these creators to help us educate ourselves and mm. be more informed. But in Mexico, it's a completely different culture. Why did you choose Mexico? So we, um, the US is our largest audience. Yeah. North America, obviously, is huge mm -hmm. in population. Mm -hmm. Spanish is the second most spoken language in the world. Um, the challenges experienced by people in Mexico are huge. And Mexico is now at a point where internet connectivity is becoming more common. Mm -hmm. um, we actually tried to launch in Mexico about six years ago in partnership with Lynx. Right, okay. But the resource that was put behind it was not enough. Right. And so it just didn't work. And we were approached by a brand partner called BRP and they specialize in sports or automotives. So things like snowmobiles, jet skis, um, and their social purpose is all about intimidation and preventing it. They have a huge employee population in Mexico. And they said, have you ever thought about Mexico? And we're like, oh my gosh, it was like serendipitous because yeah. it's always been something we've wanted to do. Mm. Um, and if we nail it in Mexico, we have an opportunity to scale across more Spanish-speaking countries. Yeah. And so they're like, we're really passionate about doing something in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Nothing exists and there's a huge need. And we've like, mm. we literally share that mission. Mm. And so they, over the past year, have supported us and put a huge amount of resource behind it. And we launched it like two weeks ago in, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And the response was incredible. Like, yeah. we've had the most welcoming, incredible response. And I think because we've taken the time to really understand the challenges and what it's like, mm -hmm. and, you know, we're really passionate about employing people in Mexico. So all of the talent, mm -hmm. apart from kind of people working in the UK, all of the talent that we've worked with have come from Mexico and we've not been paying them by the local rates. We've been paying them by the rates we would pay Amazing. here, which yeah. is significantly higher. Yeah. So... And another thing, just really quickly, like one of the challenges in Mexico is, um, can you guess how many child psychologists there are per 100,000 young people? I'm guessing not many. Have a guess. 100,000? One? Yeah, one. So our approach is we cannot be taking those... That's ridiculous. Like yeah. How... Just doesn't exist. Yeah. So our approach is we cannot be taking those child psychologists who are already in Mexico mm. and then bringing them over to Quitate Las Eticas, which is our brand right. name in Spanish. Okay. What we are doing is we're um, working with uh, Spanish-speaking therapists and counselors mm. from the US and across the right. world okay. and then adding to that capacity. So we have a massive opportunity to create real change. Yeah. That's So my... Um... My dad's Peruvian, um, so half of my family is from South America. And just when you're when you're talking about that, I'm thinking about my family and think. And I lived there for about a year, and I don't know if it's got better now because I lived there probably ten years ago now. But mental health was not ever talked about. It was very, very a taboo subject. I would say. Now I don't know if it's got better. I'm sure in the like in the capital in Lima, it's probably a bit better because it's a little bit more gentrified, but. I'm trying to think about the reasons why, and I think that probably it's to do with the poverty over there. 
there is not education just full stop let alone education and mental health like i can see it being pretty far down on the curriculum over there is that kind of the reasoning behind the lack of culture in in mexico i would say there's many it's complicated right um if your main priority is to make sure there is food on the table for your children yeah are you thinking about how you feel mm. maybe not mm -hmm. in the same way that we have the luxury of doing it here mm. there's also a big challenge um in Mexico, it's called machismo culture. Yes. Very yeah. masculine culture. Yeah. And when you look at, you know, we've done a lot of work on masculinity and what yeah. it means to be a man and a woman and how toxic some of these ideals become. Mm -hmm. When you look at uh, the construct of masculinity in Mexico, it's even more extreme than what we experience. So mm. the weighted on violence, stoicism, mm. aggression, being strong, uh, not showing any emotion, mm -hmm. is the expectation is even stronger yeah. in Mexico. And because that culture dominates the country, mm -hmm. that doesn't just affect men, it also affects women. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And everybody else, it yeah. has an impact on everybody. It's interesting. Have you done much work with, um, with sports teams, like really like masculine sports, like rugby? No, we have... We are actually about to start working with FIFA right, e, okay. uh, on their esports. Yeah. And one of our therapists actually just went out to uh, Sweden and right. did a keynote for these huge uh, esports influencers mm. and was talking about mental health and how to maintain it. But it is something we definitely want to do more of. Mm. Um, we've had a partnership with EA Games on and off for like almost a decade. Yeah. And a lot of their titles have very masculine cultures and communities yeah. and you know some of their titles which by their own admission can become quite toxic mm. and they're a perfect example of a brand who is coming forward saying we have challenges mm -hmm. we want to fix them yeah and we know we can't do it alone mm. and working with brand partners like that is really such an incredible opportunity to create meaningful change yeah um but you're right, you know, uh, masculine ideals are per perpetuated quite heavily across sport. Mm. It is getting better, yeah. but it's still a little bit behind yeah. where the kind of base amount is. Yeah. I think everything you're doing with Ditcher Label is amazing. What, aside from obviously launching in Mexico, what's next for Ditcher Label? What have you got coming up? So we have just launched Ditcher Label 3.0, mm -hmm. um, which is... <laughs> the most we've ever spent on a website <laughs> <laughs> um it is so exciting yeah. so you know ditch started on myspace then yeah. we were web 2 and yeah. we had like you know the iteration all these iterations of websites and our manifesto has always been to be digital first and so we've been really watching everything happening in web3 and we're so excited about the possibility of things like ai and yeah. the metaverse and mm. you know all of these incredible technologies that mm. can create social good and so ditch label 3.0 is our brand new website it's been rewritten from the ground up mm -hmm. um it's incredible like we've got ai we've got deep personalization mm -hmm. we've even got something called zen mode so if you are feeling overwhelmed you click a button and all the images all the video all wow. the color just disappears and it becomes black and white and it is a much calmer um experience i've never i've never been on a website that could do that yeah 
What? How does the AI? I'm, I'm fascinated by AI. How does that work on on your website? So we've got two different implementations of it so right. far. So the first one is all based on search. So mm. we know that quite often uh, people search for symptoms or how they're feeling, not necessarily how we would categorize it. So for example, uh, someone might describe a symptom of anxiety mm. without actually saying anxiety. And so mm. we've got some machine learning that will learn over time and become more intelligent. So if you start to say, I'm feeling a tightness in my chest, for example, um, you will then be suggested things about anxiety, about mm. panic attacks, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's not the best example because a tightness in the chest could be some yeah. many things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the point is it's constantly learning yeah. and being reinforced by uh, user feedback. So that's the first uh, tool we have. And then the second one is um, we're bringing in personalization. So you can create one account mm -hmm. and with that account, you can do many things. So... Uh, one of the biggest things is you get access to this community of thousands of people who are talking about their challenges mm. and you can speak to mentors and all this kind of stuff. But you can also add personalization. Mm. So we have a bit of an onboarding process. So you tell us what it is you're going through, mm -hmm. what it is that you're interested in, mm. and our AI will start to recommend things to you. So in the example of anxiety, if you're right. saying you're feeling anxious, over time, it's going to recommend resources on anxiety and top tips, but mm -hmm. then it's going to start teaching you how to meditate, how to become more mindful. Mm -hmm. And so we're using AI to create those really personalized user journeys. Yeah. Um, another thing that we're doing is we're, with Maybelline, piloting therapy in the metaverse, which has never been done before. Mm. And so, yeah, Tell me more about this. You mentioned this just before the podcast and it sounds crazy. So the way it will work is you will enter a virtual world yeah, and you will be sat in an environment which will be customized by you. Mm -hmm. So if you say, I feel more relaxed in nature or right, I feel yeah. more relaxed in a typical therapist office, yeah, yeah, the environment will reflect that. Yeah. And you will be sat as we are yeah. virtually with a therapist for 50 minutes mm. and you will have therapy. You can either type or you can talk over microphone mm. and... It's fascinating. It's never been done before. It could either go really well or not so well. Mm. But we believe it's going to be absolutely groundbreaking and will make therapy infinitely more accessible, not just for people mm. who are on long waiting lists, maybe can't afford to go for it privately, but we also get young people who are too anxious to even leave the house. Yeah, And so we work with them over a period of time to help them challenge that anxiety and to learn and grow. And, mm. you know, within a few months, they then start going to the corner shop or then they go and meet a friend. Or, mm -hmm. And so for people who don't feel comfortable or maybe feel intimidated sitting opposite, you know, an, yeah. older, a, yeah. an old adult yeah, yeah. with a clip pad and pen, yeah. it's intimidating. Yeah. It's intimidating for anybody. Mm you're not going to have that. You're going to be sat opposite this virtual avatar that is the same height as you, has mm. no age. Mm. Um, we also know that there's unique psychology when you're presenting as an avatar online. Mm -hmm. It can make it easier to be more open about what's really going on. And it yeah. can be easier to open up and, um, you know, kind of like express who you actually when are. When you can hide your name, your face, it just makes you feel a bit more comfortable in that situation. I... I went to therapy a couple of times and I, I had this like fear that the, the, whatever I told the therapy, I know they're not allowed to say anything, but it was in my little town where I live in, in Histon near Cambridge. I was like, 
if she sees my wife or someone I know, like she could just tell them. And I know that's so irrational, but that's what what, what went through my head. And I was like, I can't, I can't tell her the things that I really want to tell her. So to have that mask is is amazing. And when you're going in with that mindset, you're not opening up no, and then first no. of all, not getting the full benefit and the full growth potential from yeah, it. Yeah, it's incredible. Liam, thank you so much for coming on. Um, my final question for you, and it's something that I ask everybody on the podcast is, whether it's business related or personal related, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned that people can go away with and have a healthier mindset? I would say, and this is more of my philosophy. Yeah. Um, I believe that we all have our own individual journey mm -hmm. and the more challenging things are generally, the more you learn. Yeah. And if you don't feel uncomfortable enough, you're not growing. Mm -hmm. And so, my thing in personal life and business life is to keep pushing my comfort zone to embrace difficult situations yeah. and to really just go for it and also as well just in tune with that is really getting to know myself so if i'm feeling something mm. or i'm feeling a hesitancy i've developed the ability to question where that's coming from mm -hmm. what that means if mm. it's something i should challenge yeah and I would say just keep pushing. Yeah. I've got this little um, post-it note on my uh, computer at work, and it's a circle with an X on the outside of it. Right. It's just my reminder to myself that the circle is my comfort zone, and the X is whatever's going to make me feel uncomfortable. Right. Just doing it gradually. Yeah. That's that's my. Day. I love that, Liam. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Yeah.